The following message was presented during the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries 2017 Prophecy Conference season. Now, here's Jim Showers with the opening message to our series on Daniel, God's Revelation for Our Times. Let's take a look at the book of Daniel because that's why we've come uh, here tonight is to begin our study of the book of Daniel. Tonight, in this first session, I just want to give you an introduction to the book uh, of Daniel. And so we begin with how long ago was it written? It was written 2,500 years ago. A book that was written more than two millennia ago, two and a half millennia. And it was written in exile, so much of the Bible was written in the land of Israel. But this is one of the books that was written uh, outside of Israel. It was written in Babylon and Persia, which is modern-day Iraq and Iran. And it was uh, written, God gave this book to Daniel to be a hope. You know, put yourself where the Jewish people were at that time. Um, Let me read to you something that might put you in that perspective that we wrote in thinking about this conference. All seemed lost to the Jewish people. Jerusalem was destroyed. The holy temple lay in ruins. And they were exiled to a foreign land. The thoughts of God's abandonment must have crossed their minds as the enemies of God ruled over God's chosen people. Yet even in one of Israel's darkest moments, God raised up a prophet to give his people a ray of hope and to model how a servant of the Lord can live righteously in a wicked world. That prophet was Daniel. The book of Daniel gives hope. Hope of a promise of a future for Israel. Yes, they were going to a foreign land. Yes, they were going to be oppressed. Yes, their freedom was taken away from them. But to Israel, Daniel's book says, don't lose hope. God has not abandoned you, and he has not forgotten you. And so the book of Daniel provides great hope. The author, I don't think we have to debate tonight who the author is. It was Daniel the prophet. He uh, was a citizen of Jerusalem. Daniel comes to be part of this exile because he lived in this city in 605 B.C., Uh, The king of Babylon came and surrounded the city of Jerusalem and conquered it. And he took exiles. In fact, uh, we read in verse 3 of chapter 1 that they were young men. He gives, the king gives instruction who he wants taken back to Babylon, particularly to serve in his his palace and under his authority. And so Daniel is a noble. He's of noble birth. He's part of the upper class, if you will, in Israel. And he's taken captive as the, as the king heads back to Babylon. The fact that Daniel is the author is, I think, we have no better source than the Lord himself. Jesus Christ attested to the fact that Daniel wrote this book. In Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Jesus said, Daniel wrote this book. That's good enough for me. You know, there are critics of the Bible today, uh, textual critics, who question, say, Daniel couldn't have written this book. Because there's no way you could predict with the precision that he predicted the events that were going to occur. It had to have been written by somebody many years later who witnessed what happened and then wrote about it. But see, somebody who thinks that way doesn't believe in a God who knows the future. Daniel is the author. 
He wrote it while he was serving in the royal courts in Babylon and Persia. We believe it was probably written later in his life. Daniel's about 15 years old, as we understand it, when uh, he's taken into captivity. But he, uh, he writes this book probably toward the end of his life. And yet, we find the book of Daniel is very relevant for today because it speaks not only of the past and the present, but it speaks to the future. Here's the timeline of Daniel. This kind of lays out for us the events of Daniel because when you start looking at this timeline, you start noticing very interesting things. For example, 605, Daniel's taken into captivity. Two years later, only two years later, if he's 15 when he goes into captivity, how old would he be two years later? You are so smart. That's why I love to be here with you. He's 17. And we get to Daniel 2. A 17-year-old young man. This is why he's not in the court when the king first brings out the dream to his wise men. Remember, you're going to study this tomorrow morning in the first session. Daniel finds out once the king's already given the order to begin killing the wise men that there's a problem. He's 17 years old. By the time you get to the end of that chapter, he's over the kingdom of Babylon under the king. It's an amazing thing. Reminds you of Joseph, doesn't it? Going into captivity. The only difference is Daniel gets put to the top very quickly. Uh, about 19 years after Jerusalem's defeated, Babylon actually destroys the city, destroys the temple, carries many things back uh, to Babylon from the temple and, and from the city. And then it's another six years later when Daniel's three friends are put into the fire furnace. And that's Daniel 3. So you would end Daniel 2... And you turn right to Daniel 3, and here's the king putting up this image. And he wants everyone to bow down and worship it, right? Look at the timeline. That was from 603 to 580. 23 years later. One verse in your book, Bible, 23 years on the, on the timeline. Um, 539, Belshazzar's kingdom falls to Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel in the lion's den, two years after that. And by the way, if you look at the bottom, Daniel, if he was 15 when he went into captivity, he's now in his 80s when Daniel in the lion's den occurs. You might have thought he was pretty young. Turns out he was old meat for those lions. Well, What's in the name? As I was preparing this message a few weeks back, somebody sent me a, an email, uh, had this in it, and I just thought it was, it was uh, cute and actually fit here a little bit with what I want to talk about next. Yeah, these are uh, uh, letters to God from dogs, I guess, or messages. Dear God, it's me, the dog. Dear God, is it on purpose that our names are spelled the same only in reverse? What's in the name? How many of you have children? Okay, so every one of you that raised your name has had the privilege of naming at least one person who's come into this world. Uh, and, you know, in America today and in, in our culture, uh, we go about picking names before the child is born normally. 
and we pick popular names or we pick names after relatives. Uh, people list, love to pick names of somebody that's on a television show or in a movie or an actor, an actress, a celebrity, somebody they like. We pick names for all kinds of reasons. And from generation to generation, they don't want the names of their generation, they want new names, something that's really different and unique. This, by the way, I had to have a picture of a baby, so I used my uh, new granddaughter who was just born a few months ago. And uh, by the way, uh, her name, you're going to ask me this if I don't tell you, her name is Vivian. Okay, so my daughter-in-law and son decided to pick an old name, one from the past. But most of the names today don't have any real significance beyond they were just what mom and dad liked at the time. But let me tell you about Vivian's middle name. It's Grace. There's a reason for that. My son and daughter-in-law uh, lost two children shortly after birth. And they had, in between the two they lost, they had a healthy one born. But after the loss of the second child about eight years ago, they just determined that they were done trying to have children uh, because the pain of losing a child after birth was, was, was hard. And then, I don't know, maybe a little over a year ago, we got a phone call one day. It's from our son and daughter-in-law. And they said, Mom, Dad, we're going to have another baby. <coughs> Unexpected unplanned by them, all in God's plan. And so they named her Grace because she's a gift from God, because they really didn't know, even when they were carrying this, this child, whether she would be born healthy or not. They chose Grace for a reason. And I want to talk to you about names. Why do I ask you about babies' names? Because in the Old Testament, names have oftentimes a significance. They represent uh, the essence of a person or their character or their destiny, something like that. Names are chosen for a reason, and they aren't based on who's popular or who the relative is or that kind of a thing. They have significance, and many, many times they're chosen after birth. So, what was the first job that Adam had after he was created? Naming the animals. A significant thing. Some names describe the person. For example, Esau. He's named after he's born because he was hairy. Esau means hairy. And his brother Jacob was given his name. Why? Because he came out of the womb holding the heel of his brother. And Jacob means heel grabber or he who trips up. Moses. His name means to draw out. He was drawn out of the Nile. But when he got older, God used him to draw the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt and free them from their bondage. How'd their parents know to name them that? Uh, one last one there, Nabal. 1 Samuel 25, remember David, when he's, uh, when he's uh, fleeing, when he's being chased by Saul, and he and his, his group of uh, guys that followed him, they protect Nabal's uh, shepherds in flocks from danger. And later on during the harvest, David sends a couple of his guys back to uh, catch up with Nabal and ask for some food, figuring that in the harvest, he would be willing to share a little bit of percentage, a portion of the harvest. 
And Nabal turns them away empty-handed. Says, who is David to me? And so, of course, this angers David. But Nabal's wife finds out from the servants what happened. And what does she do? She gathers a bunch of food and immediately hightails it to David to intercept him before he can come and destroy their whole household with his, with his men. It says his name is Nabal because folly is with him, and his name means fool. There are some names that speak about the times of, the, of when the person is born. For Samuel 4 is when uh, Israel goes into battle against the Philistines and believing that if they took the Ark of the Covenant with them, they would gain victory. It was a foolish thing to do, and the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And when the news comes back to Eli, he falls over and dies. Not only that, but his sons were killed as well in, uh, during the battle. And so uh, one of his sons, Phineas. Uh, his wife was pregnant with child, and when she heard that her father-in-law and her husband had been killed, she went into labor, delivered a child, and w- when they said, what do you want to name him? She said, call him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed because the glory has departed from Israel when the Philistines captured the ark. Isaac. Remember the story of Isaac. A year before he's born, the, uh, the angels come, and visit Abraham? And is there sharing with Abraham that, that a, a 99-year-old man in a year would bear a child to an 89-year-old woman? And Sarah's out listening, and she laughs. So when Isaac is born, they name him Laughter. There are also uh, a lot of names in the Bible that combine a short and firm form of the word for God. El uh, is a short form for Elohim and Yah for Yahweh. And so let me show you a few of those. Elimelech means my God is king. Elisha, my God is salvation. Uh, Nathaniel, God has given. Yehoshua or Joshua, as we would have in our Bible, is God is salvation. Jehoshaphat is God has judged. And Elijah, my God is Yah. And we could talk a little bit more about some of those things, but time won't allow us. Why do I give you a short lesson in names in the Old Testament? Because of Daniel's name. Daniel's name means my God is, or my God is my judge, or my judge is God. Now think about that. Your parents give you a name that means God is your judge. Why would they do that? Well, first of all, I believe this indicates that likely Daniel's parents were godly people. Even though the nation of Israel had gotten away from God, there were still a remnant that were godly. And they gave him a name that gives him identity of who he is. Daniel is is one who will carry this name that reminds him continually that God is his judge. Daniel... Uh, had a name that defined his life. In an age when Israel didn't walk with God, Daniel had a name that reminded him that God was still their judge. And it prepared him for the life that he was going to face. If you will, it was a plumb line to bring him back to center. And we know it, it had an impact on him because in Ezekiel 14 we read that Daniel lived a righteous life just as Noah and Job did. It's pretty elite company, folks. Not only was it an identity, it was a context. 
It spoke to the times in which he lived. He was headed into exile because of the way Israel was living. And therefore, they gave him a name that was going to uh, give him the context in which uh, he would be living out the rest of his life. His parents understood that God's warning through the prophets that God is the one who judges. And Israel's coming exile is God's judgment. And it was a reminder to Daniel not to fear men, but fear God who holds in your hand your eternal destiny. And I believe the name of Daniel, my God, or God is my judge, is also equipping to help him to face difficult circumstances. You imagine growing up with a name like God is my judge? Imagine what happens when your friend says, well, let's, let's go into the farmer's field and steal some grapes. God is my judge. When anybody calls you by name, they're reminding you who judges you. And, uh, and so when, when he faced tough choices, he was to remember God is the one who judges. While we live in the realm of men, we ultimately answer to the Lord. And I think there's a real lesson there, not only for Daniel's time and for our time, but for all times. And it's simply this, compromise is never justified by circumstances. In the midst of difficulty, we need to be careful that we choose well. Why? Because God is my judge. Look at Daniel's life, captivity in a foreign land. He would not eat unclean food. He would not worship a human leader, and he would not stop praying to God for 30 days. You see, my friends, compromise begins when we allow circumstances to justify our choices. And listen, to be a teenager and to be taken into captivity, not because of anything you've done, but because of what your, your uh, forebears before you had done and other people that you live with, you could easily justify eating food that you shouldn't eat. After all, God put me under the king's authority, and this is what the king told me to do. I should obey the king, right? Or bowing down to an image of a man. Instead of worshiping God, worshiping man. It'd be easy to say that the repercussions for disobeying the king's command are so great, and we don't need to be rocking the boat here. Or perhaps saying 30 days of not praying. What's wrong with not praying for 30 days? And yet for Daniel... He knew that compromise begins when we allow circumstances to justify our choices. When we say, I know we're not supposed to eat unclean food, but. Or I know we should only worship God, but. Or I know I should pray to God, but. When we fear God, our judge, we obey him. And this is the essence of our human dilemma. God is my judge for all eternity. And I answer to no one else in all the universe. Quite honestly, this is why we all need a savior. Because God judges us and we fall short of his glory. And here's something I want you to be aware of. The beginning of understanding is the fear of God and godliness comes from fearing God. When God when when Daniel honored God, then blessings followed. God gives him knowledge, 
You can read this in Daniel 1.17. God gives them knowledge, skill in all literature, wisdom, understanding in all visions, and in dreams. Why? Because he was obedient. And you know, this was true not only of Daniel, but of his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They all had names with very interesting meanings as well. Hananiah means God has been gracious. In the midst of punishment for your sin, don't forget that God is still gracious. And Mishael, who is what God is? You know what that means? There is no other God like this God. He stands alone. We were singing earlier tonight, uh, How Great Thou Art. What a great song for this study in Daniel. A study of the Most High God. Who is what God is. In Azariah, God has helped. If God doesn't help Israel, they're doomed. Even in exile. So God speaks through the prophet Daniel... And in the, in the book of Daniel, one of the things that we recognize is his sovereignty over kingdoms. This is a key aspect of the book of Daniel, that the kingdoms of this earth serve God's purpose. Daniel testifies to this in Daniel chapter 2 when he says that God changes the times and the seasons. God removes kings and he raises up kings. The book of Daniel can be divided really in two halves, if you would. But the sovereignty of God runs across all the chapters and all the verses of Daniel. The first six chapters of Daniel are really six narratives. You see them listed there. Each chapter is one narrative. And then we get to the second half of Daniel, the last six chapters. We encounter four visions that speak of the future. Daniel, by the way, is written in two languages. You won't get this out of your English Bible when you read it. It's all English to you. If you were to go back to the original text, you would find chapter 1 through the middle of the fourth verse of chapter 2, and then chapter 8 to the end of the book is all in Hebrew. Why? Because it's the language of the Jewish people. And those chapters tend to focus on the future of God's people and God's speaking to the Jewish people. But when he's speaking about the Gentile nations... He writes in Aramaic. So from the second half of verse 4 in chapter 2 through the end of chapter 7, he's using Aramaic, the international language of Daniel's day, to focus on the Gentile kingdoms. And here are five kingdoms. This is one of the keys to understanding the book of Daniel and its significance in Daniel's day, in our day, and in the future. Daniel presents five kingdoms. Each kingdom in order replaces or supersedes or overcomes, conquers the previous kingdom. And so you have the Babylonian kingdom, the one that Daniel was in at the time. Uh, he begins writing. Then the Persian kingdom where Daniel ended his life. Then the Greek kingdom. Then the Roman kingdom in two phases. The first phase is an initial strong phase. And then the second phase is a revived Weaker And Revive gives us the indication that there is some gap of time between the first phase and the second phase. And the one you should say hallelujah for is the fifth kingdom. It's the one we look forward to. It is the kingdom that will never 
be destroyed. It will break in pieces and consume all the others. It will stand forever. This is the kingdom of God's Son, according to Daniel chapter 7. And we, when it comes, it will have no end. It shall stand forever. Amen? Amen. I want to share with you as we come to the close of our introduction to the book of Daniel four threads that run through the tapestry of the book of Daniel. These are four things to be looking for over the next five days as we study this book. The first one is omniscience. This is the first thread. It's the idea that God knows all, past, present, and future. God does not have to wait for history to unfold to know what it's going to do and where it's going and what's going to happen. The Bible teaches, and Daniel's one of the books where we get this, is that God foretells the future with precision. He identifies key players and kingdoms, and God will use Israel to complete his plan. The second thread is sovereignty, that God is sovereign over the affairs of man, that God's hand is at work accomplishing his will here on earth. Because God is uh, sovereign, he can humble the greatest of men, and God will defeat the prince over the kingdoms of this world, Satan himself someday, through that final fifth kingdom. The third thread that we just mentioned is kingdoms. God's kingdom, by the way, is the only one that will last. All human kingdoms are empowered by Satan, but God's son will establish his kingdom to rule over men. The last kingdom is superior to all the other kingdoms combined. And the last thread is obedience. Obedience, the true measure of godliness, is obedience. Daniel and his friends chose obedience over convenience. In the face of dire circumstances, they did not compromise. God honored their obedience to him by rewarding them with blessing. I believe that Daniel's book is very relevant for our times. And I want you to take note of some of the relevance that you'll be uh, encountering over the next few days. First of all, the hope that God has a future plan and it is a glorious one. There is reason to have hope. When we look at what's going on in the world today, we do not need to worry and fret about what is happening and where it's going to end up. We do not need to be concerned when people talk about the world coming to an end and great disasters occurring and all of humankind being wiped out because God says he has a plan and it is a plan to preserve mankind. Secondly, there is perspective that gives us an understanding to today's events and all that is occurring. Thirdly is the connection. The book of Daniel dovetails with the book of Revelation that we studied here two years ago. Daniel does not give all the, the information about the end times, nor does Revelation. But when you put the two together, it's like a dovetail. They fit hand in glove, if you will. And finally, examination. God was not only Daniel's judge, he's also my judge. And a God who judges Daniel will also judge us. Let me ask you this question as we close. Do you dare to be a Daniel today? I think Steve's going to have something to say about that in the next hour. So I hope you will stay around uh, and consider whether you can dare to be a Daniel. Father, thank you for giving us such a rich and wonderful book. Daniel is one of the most significant books in the Older Testament.
because of what it speaks to. It, it reveals to us how you work in the hearts and lives of men through kingdoms, through kings, through powers. And Lord, we also see in the book of Daniel that your plan to redeem this world will come about through a final kingdom, one that is greater than anything this world has ever seen. And it will be led by your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray as we study this book of Daniel that you will challenge our hearts to stand up and be a Daniel in this day, not to compromise with all of the, the pressures and the traps and the enticements that are out there, but to stand for your word, to be obedient to what you have called us to be. And for this we pray in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. Amen. For more audio resources, including MP3 downloads of past Prophecy Conferences, visit us at foi.org.